I'd just like to welcome everyone who's joining us for our live stream. Just one part of our service here at Chelsea Community Church with City Temple. If you want to be part of the whole thing, you can join us online by dropping us an email, or you can come and join us in person uh, Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock here at Chelsea. If you have your Bible, we're going to read from Daniel chapter 1 and then Titus chapter 3 in the, in the New Testament. And we're starting a, a new series today, uh, Flourishing in Babylon. It's really an extension of the uh, previous series, Living in Babylon. But we're focusing particularly on Daniel because Daniel is the uh, uh, typical leader for God in Babylon. And so we're going to learn a lot from Daniel uh, the next few weeks as we look at Daniel's chapter 1 to 6 and then chapter 9. Before we read, let's bow in prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I do thank you that it's trustworthy and true. And I pray now that you would speak to us clearly as we go to your word and uh, strengthen us uh, and draw us closer to you and make us more fruitful so that we could flourish here in our new Babylon. We love you and praise you and pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So starting with Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance 
and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all dreams and visions. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none were, was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And then let's go to Titus. Chapter 3. Paul is speaking to Titus here. He's Titus who's leading the church. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. London is the place for me. Right? London is the place for me. That's about all I know. It's great, you know, great lyrics. I love it. But, uh, and I love, you know, uh, what, what was that? Uh, oh, come on, the Bear Paddington. <laughs> Reintroducing that, you know. London is the place for me. I was, you know, I'd walk down the street singing, London is the place for me. And uh, of course, you know, uh, hopefully you know, that that was uh, written by Lord Kitchener on the Windrush, the Empire Windrush, as they were traveling over to London. And you might remember that the Empire Windrush arrived at the Tilbury Docks uh, from the Caribbean on the 22nd of June, 1948. And we've just celebrated the 75th anniversary of this. 
and uh, there's street parties and all kinds of things. And I imagine a few people were singing, London is the place for me. Although, you know, when he wrote the song, he wrote it a little tongue-in-cheek because he knew that London was going to be quite a difficult place for the people coming from the Caribbean at that time, as it proved to be. You know, the initial reaction to the Windrush was not really welcoming. Although there were a lot of positive stories in the newspapers, you know, frankly, the government expressed a lot of concern because they were alarmed by the prospect of a visibly different population. It's sad but true. Sad but true. And the, the response that many of those that came over on the Windrush received was quite mixed and sometimes was considerably hostile. Many people, many in the government, assumed that they would just be temporary visitors rather than people who were really here to stay. And it's interesting, when you think now, looking back 75 years, and you think of how dramatic the impact has been on London. I mean, the, the Windrush generation changed the nature of the city, changed London profoundly, profoundly, and I believe profoundly for the good. But London was changed dramatically. When you think about that, it's interesting to note that initially there were only about one to 2,000 people a year that came over that immigrated. It was a very, very small number. But you think over time, the kind of impact that they've had, an impact that was so good, you know, that we could celebrate the, the 75th anniversary here recently. Now, obviously, our situation is quite different in many ways, but many in our society right now look at Christians much in the same way as they were looking at those people who came off the Empire Windrush. I mean, we don't really perceive it because things have changed oftentimes while we've lived here. But some people look at us and they, they think that we're strange. We do strange things. We have strange habits. We have a strange language, even though we speak English. We have some really weird customs. I mean, how many people do flags in their living rooms, right? You know, how many people, you know, sing songs like we do and those kinds of things. In some, some respects, the people are jealous of Christians and, and the way we sing songs together and the kinds of things that we do together. And uh, we speak English, but we seem to be speaking a different language for a lot of people. We are both welcomed right now as Christians and very much excluded in our society. And we're seeing that. It's in the newspaper almost every single day. And frankly, our numbers relative to the total society are quite small. We think now that probably no more than 3 to 4% of the people who live in the United Kingdom are actually committed Christians, or what we might say born-again Christians or converted Christians. There's a lot of people who like some of the trappings of Christianity but really don't follow Jesus. So 3 to 4% is really quite a small number overall. But we can still have that kind of influence. It's interesting to me how 
Even the British Library back in 2018 all connected us as Christians in this time living in Babylon with the reality of the Windrush generation. Their display at the time, the British Library in 2018, was called Songs in a Strange Land. And that's based on Psalm 137, one of the psalms that we've looked at about living in this strange land that we call Babylon. So in all of this, looking at Windrush, looking at our situation, we can kind of imagine a bit of how those first Jews must have felt as they were carried off into exile and brought into their own Babylon. And it's interesting to note that the Jews became people of influence in Babylon, even though they were very, very small in number. And in the same way, we as Christians can become people of influence in our Babylonian society, in our Babylon culture right now. But we can't do it in the way that we did it when we lived in Israel. We can't do it in the way we did it when we lived in a largely Christian society. But we can become people of influence, and we can learn a lot from looking at Daniel. And that's why for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Daniel's life and what happened with Daniel in Babylon and what are some of the lessons that we can learn from that. Now, looking at the book of Daniel, uh, the book actually begins in the year 605 B.C. 605 B.C., uh, Nebuchadnezzar ruled from around 605 to 562 B.C., about 43 years. And this is the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign when he takes in uh, the exile the siege that begins the book culminated in the first of three major deportations of Jews to Babylon. The second one occurred in 597 BC and included the prophet Ezekiel. The third deportation occurred in 586 BC, and that's when the temple and the city of Jerusalem were thoroughly destroyed. Now, Babylon, uh, Daniel's lifespan, uh, Daniel's lifespan, the entire period of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He starts out in Nebuchadnezzar and he goes through the first year of King Cyrus. Now we know that he goes beyond the first year of King Cyrus. Uh, the, the Bible's not saying he just lived until that time and died the first year. He said that his time went all the way through that first year of King Cyrus, so into Cyrus's reign. Uh, and that becomes clear with uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, Persian King Cyrus, he uh, gained control of Babylon in 539 BC. So this means that Daniel was probably definitely more than 80 years old and could have been in his 90s. So he was a teenager when he was first deported. So he lived all that time in Babylon. And so it's important to note, because remember last week we, we prayed for the youth or the 20-somethings the uh, here at Chelsea City Temple. And, uh, you know, and, and so often we think that uh, the real influencers are going to be the old people with gray hair, but that's not the case, as Daniel shows us. And so it's important that we remember that. So in this first chapter, we discover how it was that Daniel became a person of influence in Babylon. 
And if we want to become people of influence in our Babylon, influencing people for the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, we need to learn some of these lessons and really take them to heart. The first thing we need to know here is that becoming a person of kingdom influence requires that we recognize and trust the sovereignty of God. If we're going to be people of influence, we have to recognize and put our trust in, our faith in, the fact that God is sovereign. Daniel shows us that God is sovereign over Babylon. Daniel makes it clear that God is sovereign over his people. We see that in the first part of this chapter because it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that came and defeated Israel. The text makes it clear that God delivered his people into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And we see that, we know that that happened because of the people's sin. You know, sometimes I think that the reason why our societies in the West have been delivered over into Babylon is because of the sin of God's people. But perhaps that's another message. We learn too here that the Lord is sovereign over the nations. And the text shows us very clearly that God is sovereign over the roles we play and the impact that we have. God's sovereignty covers all of this. It's God that gives them their place of influence there in Babylon. And we learn here too from this text that in his sovereignty, God gives us the people around us. In Daniel's case, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of the big problems and the great errors that we make when we look at Daniel is to assume that Daniel is just like this lone, strong person standing alone against the hordes of Babylon coming his way. And the text throughout makes it clear for those who have eyes to see, Daniel's not standing alone. Even though most of the stories are about him, he's not standing alone. God gives us favor. He had an inner circle of fellow Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Plus, he was part of the larger Jewish community that was forcibly resettled into Babylon. The text shows us, like in verse 9, that God is the one who gives us favor and compassion with others. In verse 17, we learn that God is the one out of his sovereignty who gives us learning, who gives us skills, who gives us spiritual gifts, such as Daniel's ability to interpret dreams and visions. We learn that God is the one who sets us in positions of influence there at the end of the chapter. But it often seems like someone else's idea. It seemed like the king's idea at the time. It seemed like the excellence of the education that they'd received. But actually, it was God. And we learn, too, that when God sets us in positions of influence, they are often not the top positions. Because the top position tends to corrupt us. Isn't that the lesson of all the kings? Even David, a man's God after man's own heart, as king, Solomon, as king. They end up falling in sin so many times. And so all of this is God's sovereignty. 
God, out of his sovereignty, out of his rulership, out of his control of the, the total span of this universe, he brings these things about. Our society cannot have shifted toward Babylon outside of the sovereignty of God. We are here for such a time as this because of God's sovereignty. And if you're going to be a person of influence, you must believe and trust in the sovereignty of God over your life, over your nation, over the church, and beyond. That's our first lesson here. The second thing that we learn from this Daniel story as becoming a person of kingdom influence requires our disciplined cooperation with God's sovereignty. It requires our disciplined cooperation with the sovereignty of God. And so often we don't. So often we don't. Uh, you know, everybody knows the inventor of the telephone, right? You'd say... Alexander Graham Bell. But actually, it wasn't. Uh, Elisha Shaw, I believe his name was, uh, had invented the telephone at the same time. And the only reason that we don't, we, we, uh, don't call it, you know, the Elisha Shaw Telephone Company is because on the way to file the patent, Elisha Shaw's solicitor decided to stop and have lunch. And because of that, Alexander Graham Bell got the patent in first. That little slip of discipline made a significant difference historically. And if we are going to be people of influence, we must have disciplined cooperation with the sovereignty of God. And frankly, this is where most of the time Christians fall down especially in the West right now. There's very little discipline. There's very little disciplined cooperation with the sovereignty of God. And this disciplined cooperation must involve at least three things that we see from Daniel's life. The first is preparation. Disciplined cooperation with God's sovereignty requires our preparation. We have to prepare ourselves to flourish. You see this in Daniel's life. When he came into Babylon, Daniel and his, his friends were already skillful in wisdom. That means they had common sense and problem solving. They knew how to gather information and apply it. That's the understanding. And they had the skills to learn, all of which gave them competence. In other words, they had to apply themselves even to the process of knowing how to learn in order to be a person of influence. And then, not only did they have to have that preparation, but they had to learn the literature and the language of Babylon. In fact, they had a three-year program. That's the equivalent of a university degree focusing exclusively on the literature, which means the culture and the language of Babylon. They had to know what Babylonian language was so they could speak it and speak it fluently. And they had to know the culture of Babylon so they could engage with it. 
And so often, Christians hide away. It's one of the things I've seen so often in London. I've seen the ghettoization of Christians. What I mean is Christians come in, you speak Spanish, you go hang out with Spanish speakers. You speak Swahili, you hang out with Swahili speakers. Uh, you speak one of the languages of India, you hang out with people who speak that language. Uh, you speak German, you hang out with Germans. And by the way, that's not only the case here. It also happens overseas all the time. I can't tell you the number of times over the years I've talked to Americans that maybe they live in Berlin and they never learn the language. They might be 10 years there and they never take time to learn the language. They never take time to engage with German culture. And consequently, they do not have an influence. You cannot have an influence in the city where God has sent you. Remember what, uh, what Jeremiah 29 told us, seek the peace of the city where you go, where I send you. You cannot seek the peace of the city unless you know its language and its customs. And unless you are willing to bring yourself in align with it, alignment with that. I mean, it's fine to be from a culture in a country where time doesn't matter. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, a, 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 a society that obsesses in, on time is no better than a society that doesn't. I remember in Haiti when we were there, when we were doing mission work, and uh, the service, I mean, it was supposed to start like 10 o'clock. It finally got underway about noon because we're waiting for everybody to get there. And that's perfectly okay. That was the cultural expectation. But we don't live in Haiti here. We don't live in Africa here. We don't live in China here or Asia here. We don't live in Australia here. We live in the United Kingdom. We live in London. And we have a responsibility to order our lives as long as it doesn't oppose the word of God to order our lives in accordance with the culture that we're in. Because if you do not, you will not have any influence whatsoever. And it's why there's some great churches, and I've known some really, really, really great churches that have won thousands of people to Christ, but have made no difference whatsoever in London. And Daniel and his crew, they had to learn how to speak the language, and they learned, had to learn the culture. And that's the only way they could have had the place of influence. So that requires preparation, discipline preparation. But the second thing Daniel had in his discipline was purity. It's not only about your preparation, but you need to have purity. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the food from the king's table. Now why? Because that food most likely had been offered to idols. And Daniel knew that his country had already gotten into enough trouble because of their sin, and he didn't want to capitulate to that. He didn't have control over his diet at that time. And so he said, no, I don't want this. I don't want the, the wine. I don't want the meat from the king's table. Just give me vegetables because I do not want to defile myself with the food, with the wine, with the prosperity of Babylon. And so he was tested. And his purity, and by the way, our purity will always be tested. 
it will always be tested. So you need preparation in your disciplined cooperation with God's sovereignty. You need to walk in purity in your disciplined preparation with God's sovereignty, uh, disciplined cooperation with God's sovereignty. And you also need the third thing that Daniel had here and shows very clearly, perseverance. Here he is, a teenager. He's a teenager. Now, when did Daniel stop doing what he did? When he died in his 90s. Daniel lived at least 70 years of persevering faithfulness before God. For 70 years, Daniel maintained his purity. I don't know, he might have eaten meat eventually when he could control it. So he didn't have to eat sacrifice to idols. I imagine he probably did that. But for 70 years, he walked in this faithfulness. 70 years, he walked in his obedience. He continued his faithfulness throughout his whole life. Daniel lived a faithful life punctuated by miracles, not a miraculous life punctuated by faithfulness. And many times today, we want a miraculous life punctuated by faithfulness. We want to go from miracle to miracle to miracle, but that doesn't always happen in Babylon. But you can live a faithful life, and that faithful life will be punctuated by the miraculous. Daniel remained all the way through the first year and beyond of King Cyrus. And Cyrus was the one who took the Jews back to Israel, let them go back. And his perseverance determined the depth and significance of his influence. His perseverance determined the depth and significance of his influence and you can see that if you read about his life throughout this book. So becoming a person of kingdom influence comes from God's sovereignty combined with our cooperation with that sovereignty through preparation, purity, and perseverance. Now thankfully, we can do that because we have even more than Daniel did. Yes, we got the sovereignty of God. Yes, we can engage in the preparation, the purity, and the perseverance. But we have even more because of Jesus Christ. And so becoming a person of kingdom influence like Daniel in today's Babylon requires that we live by faith in accordance with God's word. Unlike Daniel, we can see his example. Unlike Daniel, we have the words of the Psalms and the prophets. Unlike Daniel, we have Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection. Unlike Daniel, we have all of this, which means that even more than Daniel, are we able to live as people of kingdom influence, no matter how old you are or no matter how young you are. First of all, we learn from Titus there, what Paul told Titus, about who we are in Christ Jesus. It's hard to improve on what Paul said. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, he saved us. Jesus has saved us 
Not because of our works done in righteousness. Not because of our purity, our perseverance, or our preparation. He saved us according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration. He's made us new creatures in himself. And renewed us of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Whom he's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we have richly the Holy Spirit poured out on us. Daniel had a gift, maybe two. We have the richness of the Holy Spirit on us right now. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We need to believe that. You need to have that down in the depth of your spirit, in the depth of your bones, in the depth of your mind, because that is true no matter how you feel. That is true no matter how strong Babylon seems to be. That is true. And we have to hold on to it and believe it if we're to be people of influence in Babylon. We also, according to Paul, have a countercultural way of operating. What we called a few weeks ago, ministry in the opposite spirit. But notice what Paul tells us to do. He says, we need to continually remember. We need to continually remember some things. One, to cooperate with authorities. Now that's hard. What if they're in sin? Well, cooperating with them, which the language of submission, which we don't often understand, but it's a language of cooperation. It means we cooperate with them so that God's kingdom come and God's will is done in their lives. So we don't cooperate with authorities in their sinfulness. We don't cooperate with authorities in their declarations about who is a man and who is a woman. But we cooperate with the authorities in ways that see the kingdom of God advance in our society so that we are seeking the welfare of this city where God has placed us. That's rather countercultural, especially now. Right now, it's not about cooperation with anybody. It's about let's protest, let's strike, let's try to get our own way, and let's use the power and force that we have to try to do that. By the way, if we do that as Christians, we're going to lose. We're definitely going to lose. So we need to cooperate with the authorities. We need to obey God, according to Paul. Not humans, but God. We need to be ready for every good work out of our preparation. We need to speak evil of no one, especially in social media. Paul didn't say that, but if he lived today, he would have. We need to avoid quarreling. And in this case, he's talking about avoid quarreling with people outside the church. It's fashionable today for a lot of Christians to get into arguments with non-Christians, to engage in what's often called the cultural war. Now, I've got a message, might be rather striking, but actually, the church has already lost the cultural war. The church lost the cultural war at least in the 1990s, if not sooner. The war is already lost. Now, in the end, Jesus wins everything. So, you know, that's how that flows. But anyway, we need to avoid quarreling. We need to be gentle, Paul says. And I hate the word nice. 
That's a not, it's not a biblical word, and I do not want to be nice. And if you want to insult me, I will not take offense at almost anything in life except you call me nice. He's a really nice guy, and that offends me deeply. I want to be kind, and I want to be gentle. But you know, you can take a stand and stand firm and be the strong, immovable object and still be kind and gentle. And that's what I want to be. That's what Paul's talking about here. Be gentle. And he says, show perfect courtesy to all people, even those who are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing their days in malice and envy, and hated by and hating one another. Show perfect courtesy to them. Don't be offensive. Don't get in the face. Be courteous, is what he says. And then he also reminds us, again, that we have one another in the church. This is not us standing alone. We stand together with others. He says, be careful to devote yourselves to good works. The idea is that we together need to devote ourselves to good works. And he says, avoid arguments and controversies with one another, especially dissensions. Avoid that. We don't need to fight each other. There's a demon, there's a devil out there that deserves our fight, not one another. And so Paul says, don't do that. And he says, by the way, if somebody causes dissensions, warn them once, twice, and then have nothing more to do with them. And we do that with Chelsea City Temple. We have done that before, and the elders will tell you about it. And most of the time, you won't know about it because we don't want to shame anyone. We don't want to humiliate anyone. But frankly, if somebody is causing dissensions, we will find out, we will warn the person, and then we will remove them from our presence. Because we need to stand together, especially now. Because God wants us to become people of influence. And as long as we trust in and cooperate with the sovereignty of God, as long as we are cooperating with God's sovereignty, with our preparation, purity, and perseverance, and as long as we are living out of the resources that we have as those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be people of influence. No, Daniel, he started his journey as a young man. Probably younger than most of the young adults here in this room right now. He started that journey as a young man. But he lived a faithful life that was punctuated by the miraculous. And because he lived a faithful life punctuated by the miraculous, Daniel exercised a tremendous historical impact on Babylon that we just see glimpses of in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel just shows us, it's like snapshots. It's like taking a few snapshots out of a 90-year-old man's life and say, oh, remember this. Oh, remember this. Oh, remember this. It's just a taste. It's kind of like what we get when we look at Jesus in the Gospels. We often forget what John said at the end of the Gospel of John. He basically says, this is just a few stories. If, if we told everything that Jesus did, you know, maybe the 
world couldn't contain the books. There'd be so many of them. Now remember, that was before computers and digitization. We might get close now. But we need to remember, these are just snapshots of a faithful life punctuated by the miraculous. But we can live that kind of faithful life because Jesus has saved us. The Spirit of God is living inside of us and has changed us, empowering us to live faithfully. And God's grace and the Father's love is on us every single day to empower our faithfulness so that like Daniel, we live as people of influence. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you, we worship you, we adore you, and we thank you. Thank you so much for Daniel's life. Thank you so much for Daniel's ministry. Lord, help us to learn from it as we go through these next few weeks. Help us continually learn so that we can become more and more like Daniel, even as we become more and more like Jesus. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's join in worshiping.